0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. But I'm joined by one of our other hosts from the New Books in Philosophy podcast, um, Robert Talese, who is the author of Sustaining Democracy, What We Owe to the Other Side. And this was published in 2021 by Oxford University Press. It is a wonderfully written um, discussion of understanding how we as members of a democracy, um, small d Democrats, as he points out in the book, need to think about our particular roles in engaging in democracy. But I'm going to let Robert tell us about that. I'd like to welcome Robert to the New Books and Political Science podcast and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this project. Hi, Robert.
0: Hey, Lily, thank you so much uh, for reading the book and for those kind words uh, about it. Um, So Sustaining Democracy is a a book that emerged out of um, uh, some questions that I would regularly get as I was giving talks to various kinds of audiences about my 2019 book, which was titled Overdoing Democracy. Uh, The thesis of overdoing democracy is that Uh, There are certain capacities of democratic citizenship that can be cultivated only in the midst of non-political activities with others. And what I mean by non-political activities is activities where uh, one isn't certain of what the political affiliation of the other participants is. And the Overdoing Democracy book sort of lamented the disappearance of spaces for activities of that kind and the saturation of partisan politics into every aspect of our lives. Now, the question that I would, uh, among lots of questions, but one of the questions I would normally get uh, in giving talks uh, about that thesis um, runs like uh, the following. Um, someone would say, okay, let's. I'll grant you, Democratic citizens need sometimes to engage in these non-political cooperative efforts and, and endeavors. I'll grant that. But when it is time to do politics, how are we supposed to do it? Given that, we are prone to see the other side as benighted, depraved, untrustworthy, unpatriotic, enemies of democracy itself, perhaps. So what am I supposed to do when it's time to do politics? I'll do non-political stuff. That sounds great. But how am I supposed to do politics? Now, so that got me thinking, like, wow, that is a deep moral quandary, right, that um, democracy imposes on us as citizens. Um, You know, the way I put it in the book is, you know, democracy is a moral office, You know, we are engaged collectively in the project of wielding power that ultimately winds up um, uh, exerting force over people we claim to be our equals. So there's a a moral puzzle at the heart of democracy as to how that can be OK, how being subject to political power. Uh, is consistent with one's moral status as a, as a as a social equal. That's a puzzle. But it gives rise to this, um, you know, what I call in the book, The Democrat's Dilemma, again, little d, um, saying that, you know, we have the responsibility as members of a self-governing community of equals to attempt to pursue, to seek to realize more completely justice, right? That is so so we're, as citizens we're required to think in terms of the larger political ideals and not just our self-interest. So we're supposed to wield our political power in ways that are designed to further justice as best we understand it at the same time though, We're required to acknowledge the political equality of our fellow citizens, even when we disagree with them about what justice is all about. That's so, and that looks like a puzzle, right? It looks like, well, how am I supposed to further justice and recognize the political equality of my fellow citizens, even when they're wrong about justice? Because it looks as if recognizing their political equality obligates me to maybe listen to them, give them a hearing, give them a platform, consider things from their perspective, listen to their concerns and priorities and try to accommodate as best I can uh, a due regard for their values. But if I'm convinced that all of those values are you know, misguided and their perspective is distorted, it looks as if sort of trying to um, show them a due regard for their political equality is actually a way of obstructing my uh, my efforts to realize justice. And so it looks as if the democratic citizen is kind of in a bind. Uh, that is the result not of uh, anybody falling down on the job of democracy. I mean, that's the real sort of, that's the thing that sort of occurred to me that was really, uh, uh, you know, even more troubling. It's like, this is not a, a story about a uh, a, a democratic dysfunction or a democratic you know, conflict within democracy that is due to somebody not doing or to citizens not doing what they should. Actually, this is the kind of conflict that arises out of the effort to do what one should. So that's the, uh, the you know, that's what got me thinking uh, about the book, was that sort of question that was raised about uh, in response to the thesis of the first book. Very quickly, just a just a little bit about myself. I'm a democratic theorist, uh, um, and uh, I'm also um, uh, philosophically a pragmatist. So I work out of the tradition of, person and James and John Dewey and Jane Adams and that whole uh, crew of um, philosophers who see the see that our theorizing has to be informed and guided and in some ways constrained by. Um, real world tests you know, by the attempt to address real world problems and the effort to read, you know, to adjust our theorizing in terms, uh, in response to uh, real world feedback uh, and so on and so forth. And so this book is, um, uh, it's, it's not about pragmatist philosophers, uh, but I take it as, a, as an act of pragmatist political philosophy because it's aimed at trying to just unravel, to, to not unravel so much as sort of expose and work through and call attention to, um, you know, a, a, a moral conflict that I think just arises out of the office of, you know, responsible mm-hmm. democratic citizenship. How's that sound?
1: That sounds good. Um, and, <laughs> right. and, and certainly a good overview of the sort of knot or the puzzle, as you say, that you're trying to interrogate in this book and, and sort of tease the pieces out. And you do also critique some of those pragmatists early on for something that they had said about how to be better small d Democrats, um, which is more democracy. And your suggestion was that's not quite going to help the problem, is it?
0: Right, right. So, you know, um, uh, I happen to think maybe this is, uh, you know, just the philosopher in me talking. I happen to think that the way to um, uh, to do justice to the value of a, um, a philosopher or a theorist's um, thinking is to criticize it and to interrogate it, as you say, and to raise the, 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 uh, the problems with it. Uh, I don't think that um, uh, a philosopher, you know, the worst thing for a philosopher is to have disciples, it seems to me. Um, So, you know, Adams, Jane Adams and John Dewey, for all of their, you know, insights into, uh, you know, how democracy has to be understood more broadly, um, which I accept. Right. So, you know, both Adams and Dewey are um, among the earlier um, theorists who say, well, we think of democracy in terms of institutional manifestations, in terms of certain forms of political behavior, like voting and campaigning and donating uh, and volunteering. And those institutional and practical manifestations of democracy are, you know, are central to what democracy is, but they don't make much sense. Or we can't really explain why they're central unless we think of democracy as something broader, right? A uh, As Dewey put it, a way of life, uh, as I would like to, as I put it in the book, it's sort of a moral aspiration for a particular kind of society. So I buy that and I, sus- I subscribe to that part of the sort of Adams Dewey, you know, there's versions of this in John Stuart Mill. I mean, you know, it's not unique to uh, these 20th century pragmatist uh, political thinkers, but, um, you know, Adams and Dewey both had their own version of the the thought that the cure for any of democracy's problems is just more or better or deeper democracy. And I understand the the draw of the um, uh, of the slogan, right? And I certainly believe that there are lots of problems uh, with democracy that are the result of insufficient democratic practice, insufficiently democratic institutions, insufficiently democratic traditions. So I, I understand what motivates them to say that. And as I understand two, the two thinkers, um, given the problems that that slogan is meant to try to address, I'm on their side, right? Um, uh, however, As a broader general principle of democracy, it seems to me flawed because it seems to me to overlook the possibility, which I think is more than merely a possibility, that um, democracy has moral conflict baked into its aspiration, right? That is that there are are the set of democratic norms that constitute the democratic way of life is not internally a happy family, right? Uh, The Democrats' dilemma is supposed to be uh, uh, one site or supposed to pinpoint one site where we've got two really central norms, moral norms, moral responsibilities that fall to the citizen in virtue of her office, right? Try to seek justice, you know, use your political power to further justice as best you can see it. At the same time, recognize the political equality of your fellow citizens, even those who you think have got justice wrong. And I just want to say, yeah, when the chips are down, when questions are urgent, when things seem really, really important to us, when we're really exercised politically, those two directives, seek justice, treat your fellow citizens uh, as your equals, pull us towards different kinds of behaviors, push us in different directions. And so the 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 where I break uh, with the Adams and Dewey principle taken as a general just truth about democracy as such. So we don't want to overlook the fact that you know democracy is a complex set of institutional, practical, and moral norms and requirements and prescriptions. and um uh, it's possible, and I think it's more than merely possible. It's actual that there are cases where those norms don't, Pull or point in the same direction. And so we've got a tension, uh, a conflict that arises because we're doing democracy, right? Because we're trying to make good on our obligations. More democracy isn't the solution or the response to that kind of problem. That's a problem internal to democracy. It's not a problem that comes from some invading foreign norms that are not fully or properly democratic. This is a conflict between two, I th- I would say, incontrovertibly democratic norms. If there is a solution, I don't know that there's a solution so much as a management strategy, but if there is a solution, it's not more, better, deeper, more authentic democracy, because this is a problem that arises out of authentic democracy. How does that Sounds that sound
1: right. <laughs> I mean, I, I, it was what I understood in terms of reading the book. So you wrote it. Sounds right to me. <laughs> um, but, but I, I mean, it is, it is this sort of ongoing um, difficulty and tension that you know, democracy, sustaining democracy, is not easy work. And and so we have this entity in which we live um, and and in which other people, as, other countries aspire to live if they don't live in it. And yet we're always sort of like befuddled by the fact that it just doesn't kind of work on its own. Um, that's right. And, and I think that's sort of what you're getting at is like, yeah, it doesn't work on its own and we have to work on how to make it work. So you also talk about not only recognizing your your opponent or the person who disagrees with you as an equal, but how that also makes the, the people in the coalition together, they have to pay attention to how they manage themselves, which again is like inside the democracy and then inside your own in-group, how how are we supposed to do all of this and like, you know, take the kids to soccer?
0: <laughs> you know, uh, it's a good, uh, that's a good, uh, good point. Democracy asks a lot. Um, and, um, you know, democracy might ask, uh, um, uh, uh more than, um, uh, more than, uh, than, than is commonly supposed, um, among those who are really into politics, right? Um, and so part of the argument there uh, is, you know, has to do with um, this phenomenon uh, called belief polarization. Uh, you know, polarization is a term that gets used a lot. It's not often, you know, stated clearly what, um, what it means typically when people, political commentators and pundits, uh, talk about polarization, they're talking about a sociological divide between, you know, two political units, like two political parties, you know, where they, the parties retreat to their ideological extremes, the middle ground falls out, there's no basis for cooperation or productive communication. And so there's a lot of, you know, deadlock and log jams and, uh, resentment and frustration and all of that. Uh, at a certain intensity is very bad for democracy. Belief polarization, though, is this different kind of phenomenon. It's cognitive. It occurs within a group. Um, And it's this, you know, fairly robust social psychological finding, you know, like-minded groups, when the members interact only with uh, them, you know, with other members of the group, each member of the group starts shifting into more extreme attitudes and dispositions uh, in the direction of their uh of their prior attitudes and dispositions. So they become more fervently environmentalist. They become more radically uh, uh, a free marketer. Uh, they become more intensely uh, opposed to the death penalty or in favor of a military action, depending on what their prior commitments are. They move, they shift into uh, more extreme uh, uh commitments with greater degrees of confidence And higher levels of fervency, which means that um, they also are uh, more tolerant, uh, more ready to engage in risky behavior on behalf of uh, those those radicalized attitudes and extreme beliefs. So, and I should mention, belief polarization is not unique to political commitments. You know, it's it's found and doesn't seem to discriminate about what what's the basis of the like mindedness of your group. Is it that you all, you know. uh, Uh, You know, you all like David Lynch movies. Well, if you get together to talk about how great David Lynch movies are, you emerge from that conversation thinking they're even better. (laughs) You think uh, the city of Denver, Colorado is uh, notable for being uh, especially high above sea level. Uh, You talk to other people who think it's high in terms of its elevation, not its drug laws. Uh, And you you think it's even higher above sea level, right? So it doesn't seem to discriminate. It doesn't um, vary significantly with any of the demographic markers that you think it should. So it doesn't vary with education. doesn't vary with ethnicity, religious conviction, economic status, gender identification, any of the, it's been found all over the world, studied for, you know, 60 years, 70 years now. Okay. However, you know, belief polarization is sometimes called group polarization is something that democratic theorists and, uh, people who are working, uh, in, in the, the area of democratic theory now that now calls itself political epistemology are get, are interested in this for obvious ways. It's kind of a fascinating, you know, uh, fascinating and fascinatingly robust, uh, cognitive, uh, tendency that we have. Um, But a lot of the discussion of the political significance of belief polarization tends to focus, I think, too exclusively on the extremity part, right? Um, And maybe that's because the philosophers, at least who are engaged in this, see um, interesting philosophical issues about individual control over one's beliefs and, you know, whether one can, uh, whether one has the capacity to proportion beliefs to one's beliefs, to one's evidence. So there are longstanding philosophical questions that belief polarization seems to call into play, you know, about just epistemology, belief formation, belief revision, and all the rest. Um, And all that is interesting to me, Uh, two features of the phenomenon that I think get a little bit less play but strike me as more politically salient than just the shift towards extremity is that as we shift towards extremity, we also grow more inclined to be suspicious of people who we see as outsiders. Uh, And suspicious is putting it politely, right? Our more extreme selves are also more insular in that uh, as our group shifts into more extreme attitudes and dispositions, it also starts looking with greater degrees of suspicion, um, distrust, and in some cases even disgust, right, at those we perceive to be outsiders. Now, that looks like it's already... A problem for demo, for for democratic norms if the ethics of the if the ethics of citizenship involves the requirement to treat your fellow citizens as your equals even when you think that they're wrong about politics the belief polarization effect makes it harder sort of it dissolves or chips away at our capacity to do that because it's bound up with all this affect this negative affect towards others uh, who we perceive to be not on our side. Um, Now, a lot of, you know, some political theorists have paid attention to this and are interested in the negative affect towards outsiders, Um, but there's a further upshot of the phenomenon that I think has gotten even less attention, but I think is even more important for the question I'm asking in the book. Turns out that our more extreme selves are not only more insular, they're also more conformist. So. As groups beliefs polarized, they become more alike and they become more alike, not merely in that they start holding more similarly extreme and intense beliefs and attitudes and dispositions, but they become more alike in that the, the, the kind of behavior that goes beyond their like-mindedness starts homogenizing. So they start wearing similar articles of attire, like red baseball caps. Or a certain kind of lapel pin, they, you know, it's almost like you know, studying belief polarization sort of is depressing in one way. It's like yeah, adults are really high schoolers at heart. It's this is how clicks work, right? So there's um, uh, articles of attire become common, certain modes of expression, certain kinds of, um, you know, we call them dog whistles and keywords, and and these sorts start becoming present, uh, uh, prevalent. The group invents new ways to signal to other members of the group in ways that aren't immediately legible to outsiders, their allyship, right? This is what let's go. Brandon used to be about, right? It was a way of signaling to others who were on your team that you're on the team in a way that wasn't immediately legible to people who weren't on the team. Right. Um, and so, um, more and more, by the way, you, you, you probably uh, have, have seen some, uh, some of these studies, you know, um, in the country today, Republicans and Democrats systematically pronounce different, pronounce words differently. So the name of the country, I-R-A-N. Uh, if you say Iran or Iraq or or Iran, (laughs) you know, that's a pretty good signal of, you know, what your partisan affiliation is. Um, uh, liberals say it in the way that sounds more, uh, foreign and accenty Iran, uh, conservatives say Iran. Um, so, you know, there's lots of trends in this direction. Now, what that means is that our more extreme selves not only become more alike, with our allies, not only do we become more alike with our allies, we become more invested in being alike, right? We become more interested in our alikeness. We become more interested in policing the membership of our group. Now that's different, although it, it's obviously connected to the distrust and dislike and disgust with the out group, but it's a tension that, or it's a force that moves inside our alliances and turns us into, um, Uh, members of coalitions that grow more intensely interested in detecting posers who might be among us. Now, that detracts in all kinds of ways from the overall purposes of the group, right? You know, you're so busy trying to make sure that nobody's a poser or a faker or inauthentic or half-hearted that, you know, you start losing, you know, sight of of the, the, the purpose, the political purpose of the coalition. But it turns out that, you know, belief polarized groups start expelling members because as the demands, as the standard for authentic membership in the coalition starts escalating and becoming more demanding, more people fail to meet it. And the people who fail to meet it get expelled. One final point on this, Um, you know, belief polarization uh, is, you know... runs hand in hand with uh, uh, another cognitive phenomenon called the black sheep effect, right? You know, we systematically harbor more intensely negative and even punitive attitudes towards posers than we do towards outright enemies, right? So the people who we detect as inauthentic or half-hearted members on our side look like worse people to us than the people who are just on the outside. Um, and if, you know, you can see this, just think about what happened to Liz Cheney, what's happening to Liz Cheney, right? Despite the voting record, right? The perceived alienness drives a really intense um, uh, moral, st- you know, moral demand for punishment, that goes far beyond, you know, negative attitudes towards Liz Cheney probably outstrip negative attitudes towards rank and file members of, uh, you know, Democratic members of the House, for example, among among conservatives. So all of that means is that we tend to think about polarization as a problem for inter. cross-partisan relations, and it is a problem, right? Belief polarization does foul, you know, sort of cross-partisan relations. Cross-cutting political associations suffer because of belief polarization. The argument I make in sustaining democracy is that um, our alliances suffer as well because belief polarization leads us to break off civil or democratic relations with perceived outsiders. Um, that's a way of standing up for justice, right? Remember the Democrats' dilemma, right? Why should I show the other side any regard? I'm just going to work with my allies for justice. That's a moral stance. It looks like it's a moral stance available to a Democratic citizen who's taking the responsibility seriously because the responsibilities are in conflict. Something's got to go. It turns out, though, that once you break off Democratic relations with the other side, the forces of these cognitive forces don't just go away they turn inward right they turn you against your allies so the argument of sustaining democracy is that you know the, the some of the political dysfunctions about polarization are most evident when we look at cross partisan relations and the intensifying cross partisan animosity that exists in the country and as listeners are probably aware you know cross partisan animosity has intensified in ways that far outstrip any actual policy divisions right on the ground among rank and file citizens right so like what explains that well that's a you know that's a problem that has to be explained and i think belief polarization is part of the explanation of that arising cross partisan animosity but the dysfunction you know although it's most sort of um, legible in those contexts It doesn't end there. Belief polarization, um, because it leads us to be more conformist, it actually undermines our political alliances. And so the message that I want to give in this book to the democratic citizen is you have to look out for that, right? You don't have to, right? You don't have to be Joe Biden and say, we can't be enemies. We have to unify, unify. You don't have to be Joe Biden on this if you don't want to. You can say, no. The people on the other side are, they are my enemies because look at their, you know, look at how bad they are at thinking about justice. Look at how bad they are at democracy. They're my enemies. Not, so this is not a reconciliationist sort of argument. It just says, if you're going to take that stance towards the other side, that they really are your enemies, um, you've got to be extra careful about what that does to your alliances Because it 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 plays a taking that stance towards your enemies plays a role in intensifying uh, unhealthy attitudes uh, uh, towards the people who are supposed to be on your side.
1: And and in that regard, also, in terms of this idea of democracy, where you do have the capacity to, you know, bring different opinions to the table, if. The other side is the enemy. And so therefore we cannot we cannot discuss with them because they are opposed to justice. And then my side is not pure enough. Um, and so therefore it's it's all messed up, and we need to make sure that we, you know, find the impurities and get rid of them. Then you're kind of left, As a single man or woman on an island, which also seems to be not be democratic.
0: That's exactly (laughs) right. So the strategy, right? Think about what's happened here, right? So a citizen confronting what we earlier called the Democrats dilemma says, I'm going to stand up for justice. That means that I'm not going to bother trying to you know, uphold relations of democratic civility with my foes, because after all, they're wrong about justice. And I'm, what's really important is working with my allies to get just results. Um, I think that that is an understandable moral stance and I can, I feel the pull of it as a democratic citizen. The argument of sustaining democracy though, is that it backfires right? Because, you know, if you want to have an effective political voice, if you want to be effective in furthering justice, you've got to maintain a coalition. You've got to build an alliance. You've got to grow it if you can. The forces of belief polarization, when they are turned inward in the absence of civic relations with political opponents, shrinks the coalition. It makes it less politically efficacious. It, it, it leaves our coalitions not only shrunken, but composed solely of hardliners who can't cooperate with anyone who's not just like themselves. That is, belief polarization ultimately turns whatever coalitions remain into hierarchical and internally non-democratic political formations. Because uh, one feature of intensifying conformity pressure is not only that the, the the as the pressure to conform escalates, more people fail to satisfy it. And so they get expelled. But as groups become intensely conformist, they also become more and more reliant on hierarchy <laughs> because, you know, you want just like in high school, right? You want to have a really intense, like tight knit social group. Well, you need somebody to tell everybody, to signal to everybody what authentic membership looks like. And that's a non-egalitarian, right, mode of being of, of relatedness to other human beings when someone else gets to set the standard, right, and everyone else has to fall in line or get expelled. And so there's a kind of, when I say it backfires, it's not only a practical backfire in that, well, when the coalition shrinks, it becomes politically less efficacious. That is true. That is part of what happens. It's also a moral backfiring, right? Our political coalitions in the absence of civil relations with foes, our political coalitions become less democratic internally. So they become less able, right, to function as democratic movements, regardless of their, of their aims. They internally embed some deeply um, nasty uh, anti-democratic norms like hierarchy and conformity,
1: and and of course we do also know from all of the research on um, sort of voters' inclinations and brands um, that it's not only that you might wear a red hat should you be in a sort of MAGA-oriented zone. Or, you know, you might have Ugg boots um, that you're wearing, but also, you know, Democrats drive Subarus and Republicans drive f- four by fours by Chrysler. Um, and, and, you you know, you just need to look at what kind of magazines you your neighbor gets and you can figure out everything you need to know about them. And so that there is this internal conformity that takes place without even being aware that it's going on.
0: Yeah. And so, you know, there, that's, I think that's exactly right. And um, that the, the kind of data that you were just mentioning, you know, is a huge part of the the, the argument of the, the former book, the Overdoing Democracy book, which is about the saturation of partisan identity into, you know, Liliana Mason, and there are lots of people who write about this, stuff, the infiltration of partisan identity into what were not too long ago, um, you know, everyday activities that didn't have so legible a partisan uh, valence now all of a sudden do. So I'm sure you've you've been, you and uh, some of the listeners uh, are aware of you know how you know how robust a indicator or predictor of your voting uh, uh your voting behavior uh. Uh, is you know, how close you live to a Whole Foods store is a really good indication of how likely it is that you voted for Barack Obama. Yeah, you know, how close you live to a Cracker Barrel restaurant, you know, is a really, really good indication of how likely it is that you vote conservative uh, in presidential elections. And you know that I think reveals all kinds of interesting political and sociological facts about um, uh, how unlikely it's becoming in the country for citizens, ordinary rank and file citizens, to have unplanned social interactions with people who aren't politically like themselves. And uh, part of the data about belief polarization has been emerging, showing us that You know, contexts of like-minded discussion are really good experimental contexts for initiating belief polarization under conditions where it can be studied. But it turns out that, um, you know, what are good conditions for initiating a phenomenon so you can study it, it's not always a good indication of what the ultimate mechanism that gets it going is. And it turns out that belief polarization can be initiated in all kinds of indirect ways that don't involve like-minded discussion. They involve the priming of partisan identity, right? The affirmation, the, you know, the, the what used to be on the front page every uh, day of USA Today, the pie chart, right? That says, Hey, left leaning environmentalists also have the view that you have about immigration for a left leaning environmentalist to find out, Oh, I'm like my friends in this other new way. That's a way to get you on the path towards more extreme attitudes uh, in the direction of your prior uh, uh, dispositions towards immigration to find out that, well, the environmentalists that you ally with are also in favor of weaker immigration restrictions. That makes you think that there should be even weaker immigration (laughs) restrictions, right? And if we are living in a world where everything is a partisan signal, then we're setting ourselves up, right? It's not just the internet that's an echo chamber, right? The world around us now has an echo chamberish kind of feature. Um, and what that means is that, um, you know, the world around us now, modes of dress, our neighborhoods, our occupations becoming more partisan, you know, more sorted according to partisan identity. What that means is that, you know, um, we're becoming not only less, at, less adept at dealing with. Uh, our fellow citizens, uh, who are our partisan foes, who disagree with us, we're losing the uh, the same capacity to deal with disagreement among our allies. And if you want to see evidence of that, uh, listeners, uh, just go and look at your social uh, media feed on the night of the Met Gala, and just watch. I mean, it was it was deeply depressing to me because uh, I count. A lot of these folks, uh, as my allies politically, to watch the the vitriol with which progressives and liberals were calling each other fakes, given how they reacted to the tax the rich dress, just like, well, wait a minute, let's not lose sight of the fact that, you know, we've got bigger fish to fry, right? Like, you know, once we get to talking amongst ourselves, amongst purported allies about what the actual aims of the group are, the disagreements tend not to really be about, well, you think tax the rich means X. I think tax the rich means Y. This is how we tax the rich. This is how we need to change what we're doing. These weren't discussions about the details that need to be sorted out once we start thinking what our policy proposals ought to be about You know taxation and the rich and closing loopholes and whatever um these were um uh online uh debates that very just that quickly devolved into um uh uh you know debates about who the real progressives are right who the real allies totally predictable by the way given the phenomena that are in play totally predictable, but still politically destructive, um, belief polarization you know, leads us to adopt that view that democratic relations are proper only among people who are just like me. And that's fundamentally anti-democratic, both practically, because, you know, as you were saying earlier, Lily, you know, you, you need to get stuff done. And that means you've got to be able to tolerate differences and find common ground um, and all the rest. But it's also morally Uh, Anti-democratic, you know what? One of the upshots of the kind of equality, the political equality that democracy aspires to afford us, right, is that for better or worse, we get to make up our own minds about stuff. (laughs) That means there's going to be disagreement, (laughs) and it's and belief polarization erodes our capacity to recognize the legitimacy of disagreement, not merely with our foes, but within our coalitions. And I think that. That's politically uh, um, dysfunctional, morally and practically, for a democracy.
1: And one of the points that you make is that that this is, again, sort of building into this tension that's inherent in democracy these days or inherent in democracy fundamentally. But also you suggest that sometimes we need to walk away Um can you explain how walking away and and sort of having a chance to remove yourself from any echo chamber or chamber in general um, is part of the way we may be able to find our way back to undoing this knot?
0: That's perfect. Yeah. You know, that's the um, that's the the the, the 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 that part of the prescriptive uh, uh, um, um, uh, uh push of of the sustaining democracy book is the one that people find most uh, intriguing is, you know, sometimes they find it um, uh, not exactly intriguing, but more outlandish. Um, The thought runs like this. Um, There's a lot of empirical work being done among uh, various kinds of democratic practitioners and theorists who are interested in various versions of what's known as deliberative democracy. The idea that part of the democratic legitimacy of uh, democratically produced political outcomes has to do with opportunities for education and exchange and thinking together and arguing and disagreeing and trading, uh, entering the space of reasons with others and all the rest. Um, And... I'm in favor of all of that. I'm a deliberative Democrat of a particular description. So I'm in favor of all that and very excited about the citizen juries and assemblies and deliberative polling experiments and all that. Um, What I do want to suggest though, what I suggest in the book is that um, uh, those interventions as promising as they are, it's not clear to me that they could be sufficient, right? And part of the um, difficulty I I find with some of that uh, empirical literature is um, an inattention to what strikes me as a fundamental, perhaps philosophical distinction uh, between interventions designed to prevent something bad from happening and interventions designed to reverse the bad thing once it's happened. (laughs) And so there's a lot of empirical literature that. it, it, you know that that presents some experimental findings with with respect to a democratic intervention that shows that in the course of this intervention polarization hasn't been intensified or exacerbated they draw the conclusion then sometimes quite explicitly that the intervention is a depolarization intervention um, and that just seems to me like a, a, a just it's, it's a non sequitur. It just doesn't follow. Right. You know, I think that there are selection problems. You know, the people who show up on deliberation day, you know, are people who are really interested in, you know, trying to be better democratic citizens. Um, and so I think that there are all kinds of, you know, as promising as the results are, I think there are all kinds of questions and problems that lead me to think that those interventions can't be the whole of the solution, although they can be part of it. Um And I want to say that those interventions are also almost unitarily focused on the bringing the sides together towards a common mutual understanding, which sounds great to me. And I'm not opposed to that. But, um, you know, as anybody who uh, has watched uh, even one episode of Dr. Phil knows, uh, you know, sometimes failing interpersonal uh, uh, relations, even at the collective level require in addition to strategies for, you know, um, turning down the temperature on the interpersonal relation, uh, call for strategies of internal reflection. (laughs) You got to work on yourself sometimes in order to make things better with, uh, with the other people. Um, and so I sort of like, you know, half jokingly, but only half sort of pick up that thought and say, well, wait a minute, part of the damage that belief polarization does is to our allies and our alliances part of the task of managing belief polarization isn't really about the other side. It's about repairing relations with our own side, because belief polarization shrinks our sense of what acceptable disagreement is among allies. That is, belief polarization homogenizes us. And so as we more intensely believe polarized, we become more inclined to see disagreement about what the group's aims are as disqualifying of some people from authentic or legitimate membership in the group that has to be rehabilitated too. And I don't think that that gets addressed by, you know, trying to ease relations with the other side. So what I say is like, look, we need a way to, manage and the emphasis is on manage because polarization you know you know like-minded groups and coalitions and politically active like you know like-minded assemblies of people are just essential to democracy you can't get rid of them those modes of political activity expose us to this cognitive, you know, force, this cognitive phenomenon that make us worse at democracy, that erodes some of our democratic capacities. That's got to be managed. And I want to say, well, the way that's got to be managed is you've got to find, you've got to find occasions for political activity. And there I say, reflection, thinking, Finding out where you stand, not by figuring out where your friends are, but finding out where you stand politically by thinking your way through issues. You've got to build context where you can engage in a certain kind of solitude, uh, or I should say political solitude, because the point is not, hey, politics is small potatoes, don't sweat the small stuff, you know, take a day off, relax, retreat. Thought rather is that our conception of democratic space and our conception of civic duty have to be expanded so that they can include what seems to me to be essential functions of the democratic citizen, which involve moments of solitary and detached reflection on politics. And let me say one additional thing, because I think that um, uh, it's important. That we recognize that part of that detached solitary reflection has to involve reflection on political ideas and perspectives and challenges and conflicts and debates that aren't easily translatable into the idiom, the vernacular. Of the politics of the moment, that is, that one way I conjecture, one way that we can manage belief polarization among our allies is by taking steps to broaden our sense of the the field of political disagreement. And you know, as odd as it may sound, given that you know I'm a professor and you're a professor, <laughs> it's like, you know. Sitting in a room alone and reading Aristotle's discussion of the eight different definitions of democracy, or however many it turns out being, you know, that looks from a particular picture of democracy that looks like idle, you know, idle armchair, sort of dreaming. It looks like it's a luxury. Sitting speech. Yeah, yeah, good, good, right. (laughs) But but, uh, good. But on the other hand, I want to say, well, wait a minute. Maybe there is a certain maybe it's a civic act insofar as it's sort of grappling with, exposing oneself to ideas that are clearly about politics, right, but aren't easily translatable into, is this a Republican or a Democrat talking to me? right? And so seeing the, that there's more under, you know, there's, there, you know, that there's more to politics. Then the political divides of all of the and all of the urgency that we live under, I think, is an important, helps build important capacities for dealing with the politics of the moment. That's the important thing, right? It's not just detached, like, let's sit back in our armchairs and think about Aristotle's different conceptions of democracy and oligarchy. Say, there's a political significance in the way in which that discussion, and just say Aristotle. Isn't immediately translatable into our own idiom. It's a way of seeing our idiom as as it is, which is it's ascribed. It's it's the result of contingencies of all kinds, moral and morally questionable. It's the result of certain pressures of, of the, that that are of the moment. And um, there's more political thinking to think than what our partisan divides. Suggest to us And I think there's something again, it's conjecture. I've got some reasons in the book for thinking it's more than mere conjecture, but I think that there's something really important about that capacity to not to step back from politics, but to step back from the politics of the moment so that you can see that politics is bigger than the politics of the moment. And I want to say, seeing politics from that broader perspective is a way. Of equipping oneself, or of cultivating within oneself moral capacities for doing better politics now.
1: So it's kind of disconnecting some of the wires that have been embedded in the way we are always thinking. This is, you know, I understand because you're driving a Subaru. I know everything about you, as opposed to stepping back and sort of saying, "Well, you might drive a Subaru, and that might mean that you are voting in this direction, but." What if we sort of have a dialogue about, you know, something bigger um, to undo those wires?
0: That's right. You know, what got me thinking about this I, I tell this the, each of the chapters of the book begins with a little vignette, right? Or maybe, you know, a little story, and they're all true, by the way. Let me just emphasize that, although some of them are uh are are, are kind of weird. Um but w- w- one of the things that got me thinking in this direction was sort of like an informal little experiment that's conducted in the tw- you know, in the lead up to the 2016 election where, you know, every day people, especially people listening from the US will remember, Every day there was some new thing that was said by either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump that was the source of outrage or delight or, you know, uh, um, uh, a disgust or anger or resentment or whatever um, uh, from and and it was presented as can you believe this? You know, look at. You know. And so um Maybe because I live in Nashville uh, um, where where you know I'm originally from New Jersey, so it wasn't um, it was a bit of a one of the bits of culture shock in moving to Nashville twenty years ago is how open people are. they just start talking to you so it was sort of um, inescapable that people would just you know turn around online in Starbucks and just say, "Did you hear what Donald Trump said yesterday? Did you see the tweet? Did you watch the video um, or Uh, I can't believe what Hillary did. Um, and it occurred to me just because, you know, I'm immersed in this stuff, given that it's what I do, you know, I just, I needed a little bit of a break, (laughs) you know? And so it occurred to me to start saying things, and this was really naive of me because I thought that this would be a conversation ender or a clear enough single signal that I didn't want to have the conversation. This is how foolish I am. Right. So, you know, people would say, did you see what Trump did or did you hear what Hillary said? Did you see the deplorables? And so um, I started saying things like, oh, yeah, I I saw that. But, you know, I'm still thinking about still thinking about it. Um, And it occurred to me very quickly that this was a bad strategy for for curbing conversation. This was almost always taken as an invitation for them to say more. So it backfired in that way, but it backfired in a slightly different respect as well. I'd say, yeah, I'm still thinking about, yeah, I heard the basket of deplorables remark and I'm still thinking about it. I'm still trying to figure out what to make of it. Um, It was uh, that statement. I'm still thinking about it was always taken as a covert admission that I hadn't really heard the comment and I didn't really know what was said. And it struck me that in The popular idiom, the popular practical sort of vernacular of politics, claiming for oneself the time to think is an admission of a kind of uninformedness because the assumption is and and with my my casual interlocutors from, you know, a taxi cab driver, whatever was, if you don't know what to think about this, you must not have really heard it. Because to know these facts, this was said, this was videotaped, this was Twittered, to simply know the facts is to know what to think about them, because the facts, the facts speak for themselves, right? And so it struck me that, again, sort of pulling from a, a different kind of 20th century democratic theorist, Hannah Arendt, it struck me that, you know, this idea that there's a moment for judgment, Right that you get the facts. The facts don't tell you what to think. The facts call you to reflect on what you should judge about them, that this is being subverted. And then it started connecting it with my sort of broader empirical stuff, you know, thinking about, it's like, well, that's, that's also an upshot of the polarization stuff. It's the, you know, do do you think this was mere locker room talk or was this a person confessing to sexual assault, uh, unknowingly on camera? And if he did if he is confessing to sexual assault, then he's unfit to be president. You have to think that right away. And if you just say, well, I needed time to think about it. It's suspicious in lots of ways, right? That's the pressure to conform, right? Sort of. So I said, so, you know, sometimes we need these moments where not only do we take a step back, to reflect on the political facts before us about the divides and everything. So we also need time to step back and reflect on political things that are not our own. That's a significance. That's a way of something's being salient to us is that it pulls us out of the pressures to react immediately, to see everything as calling for an instantaneous judgment. Um, You know, it's a, It's a bit of a cliche to blame social media for everything that's going wrong in the world. Mm -hmm. But here's one place in which I think that um, social media uh, gives us, you know, sort of clear instance of what the culprit looks like. Right. Even if it's not unique to social media, but the the retweeting, the liking, the thumbs up, the friending, that all of the activities that go on to show support or even tweets that say retweet if you agree. Like, well, if I don't agree now, like the, the, the inference is, like I'm a I'm a you know I'm a you're a bad person. Uh, yeah, I'm a bad person if I don't because I just don't retweet things that tell me what to do, right? <laughs> tell me that I must do something in order to not be a monster. Um, uh, must do something on Twitter in order to not be a monster. Again, puzzling, right? <laughs> but it struck me that that was th- that 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 feature of social media is reflective of some broader political trends in our practice that are very, um, that are ultimately, I think, um, uh, um, uh, uh, dysfunctional from the point of view of democracy. Democracy needs active citizens. Yes. It also needs their activity to be the product of their reflection <laughs> and modes of democratic activity can dismantle, dissolve, undercut, counteract the capacities that enable us
1: to reflect. So, Um, since you've reached this conclusion that we need to reflect in order to be better Democrats, small D democratic citizens, um, what is it that you're working on now? You know, that's
0: a good question. So I've been doing a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of talking about the book, including uh, this wonderful podcast, um, the, um, the thing that I'm thinking about doing um, next is, um, you know, that that, uh, that, that that case for social distance as an, as an essential sort of moment and site of civic responsibility and democratic citizenship um, comes up in the book at the end, and I don't think it's fully articulated. And since writing the book and since talking to people about that, that proposal gets a lot of attention, uh, with readers of the book because they find it intriguing and problematic and counterintuitive. Um, I'm thinking about, uh, um, doing a, uh, doing a book that's just about the polit- what I call the politics of distance, uh, trading a little bit on Iris Marion Young, uh, <laughs> you know, and, um, I think that ultimately the argument leads me to a slightly different, but I think kind of compelling argument in favor of the humanities uh you know one of the feature you know there's a lot of pressure on us as educators to make our course contents and what we do in the classroom very directly relevant to the political situation we as a country find ourselves in that in our sort of civic education and our way of you know making you know adults um uh, competent citizens, we are directed, and sometimes I think in very overt ways to sort of make what we do as professors and as educators very explicitly relevant to the political situations of the day. And I don't, I don't oppose that so much as I want to say, well, wait a minute, there is a kind of civic and political value toward to seeing things from a perspective that is alien to us. <laughs> That is itself a kind of important political confrontation, right? With the material that's politics and might even be democratic politics, but isn't easily fit into the divides and fissures and conflicts that we're confronting now. That helps contextualize what's going on now in ways that um, uh, aren't so aren't so directly aimed at telling us the various things we could do, you know I mean? So I, I, I think that there's a, you know, there's an argument for Thucydides, reading Thucydides in there and, you know, uh, acquainting oneself with the with the political and sociological history of democracies that are not our own democracies, that are democracies of other times and places, learning if reading more about democracy in India, for example, right? Finding out, sort of expanding the, the, the palette of democratic thinking in a way that's released from the pressure to make it relevant to what's to make it speak to what's happening right now, and to give the politically alien thinking some due consideration as an essential part of what democratic citizens, what democratic reflective capacities are all about.
1: So I, how does that sound? it sounds good to me. And I, um, I'm totally blanking on the author of a book on slow philosophy. Um, and she is down in Australia or New Zealand. Um, and I think her argument was very similar that I'll have to check that, that um, out. The, the sort of thinking on how the immediacy of what we teach in universities. Again, this goes to the sort of consumer element of University right. life, obviously, that doesn't necessarily allow the time to read not only what is alien to us, but also what we are not used to reading. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so I think that there is something to be said for that gives you also the space to sort of reflect yourself. Um, So when that book comes out, I'd be happy to talk to you about it on the New Books and Political (laughs) Science podcast. (laughs) That's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today, Robert, to talk about sustaining democracy, what we owe to the other side. Oxford University Press 2021, I believe. And of course, available on the Oxford University Press website. Thanks for joining me today.
0: Thank you.